Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We've enjoyed revisiting our Reimagined Chicago series in partnership with the University of Chicago's Center for Effective Government at the Harris School of Public Policy. We've investigated how key institutions and systems work in the city and how they could work better. Let's now go back to the first of those conversations on how we might transform our education system. It's a fight that's been going on for decades. On July 10th, 1966, King led 5,000 marchers through downtown streets to City Hall. In 2013, Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced that a large number of schools needed to be closed to cut the deficit. School funding, school closures, Springfield, all determine a child's future. And parents count on Chicago to deliver. All students enrolled in the Chicago public schools have a right to a quality education. I took my oldest daughter to school, and I truly felt that if I left my daughter there that day, I would not see her ever again alive. It was just that bad. For more, we heard from two veteran education journalists. WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp was joined by Lorraine Forte from the Chicago Sun-Times editorial board. For a decade, Lorraine worked for the education publication Catalyst Chicago, where she served as editor-in-chief. And over the decades, Lorraine has seen and heard it all. When I first started covering education and uh, covering the schools. It was early 1990s, and that was right after, you know, there had been a big reform law passed in Springfield that gave control of local schools over to, to local school councils, which still exist today, although in a much less powerful form. But so much of that, really all of that, was driven by just the abysmal shape that schools were in because the Chicago schools had been segregated for so long, starved of resources for so long, and people were just fed up with it. And I won't say the school system was in shambles, but it was in such bad shape that really just going to local school councils and breaking up or at least attempting to break up the big bureaucracy of the school system Mm -hmm. was something that really was seen as we've got to try something drastic so let's start with this. Sarah when did you start covering the beat? Well you know it's sort of interesting because I started covering the beat actually as a teenager working for a citywide teen newspaper when I was a student in Chicago Public Schools. And um, I was actually the school news affairs editor for New Expression newspaper. (laughs) So, But I remember when the local school councils came in, and I actually ran for local school council in my high school (laughs) in the very first election that students could run in. 
And I remember being a student in Chicago Public Schools when then Education Secretary called the school to some of the worst schools in the nation. You know, at the time, I don't think that I really grasped what he was talking about because, you know, you sort of just go to school and you see teachers and you see sort of and you kind of go along. But I do remember, you know, being in classes with kids that, you know, freshman, sophomore year that were not very strong readers, you know, had suffered through the years of when you might have a teacher in your classroom and sometimes you might not have a teacher in your classroom and kids were being passed along. And there were a lot of reforms that came about, for example, that third graders had to meet a benchmark in reading before they're passed to the next grade. So that's something that's still in place, but it's been lessened over time. And so it was like the end of social promotion because there was this idea that kids were just being passed along and passed along and passed along and never actually, you know, getting the skills that they needed. And so that was sort of my first introduction. Now, I really, you know, I really started covering, covering Chicago Public Schools for Catalyst, the same magazine that, that Lorraine worked at. And we worked together for a number of years. And that was right in the middle of, you know, Arnie Duncan's tenure. He was a former um, education CEO under Richard M. Daly. And at that time was when they were just starting this whole Renaissance 2010, which is this movement to open 100 schools. And it also wound up closing hundreds of schools. And, you know, this was the invent of charter schools and kind of the idea of maybe competition and privatization could spur change within the school district. Lorraine, let's pick up where where Sarah left off there and talk a little bit more about the school system in terms of events and also the players who shaped it. Yeah, the uh, Renaissance 2010 and and Arnie Duncan's tenure, I I remember that. But I want to go back just a little bit before that. Arnie Duncan was appointed by uh, former Mayor Richard M. Daley, and he had gone to Springfield at a time when the legislature was controlled by Republicans, and he essentially got back, after the local school councils had been imposed, he had essentially got back a fair amount of control over the school system to where he could, you know, appoint whoever he wanted to the school board, and that's had a lot of repercussions even to this day, and just got more authority over the school system, which allowed him and and Arnie Duncan to to say, hey, we're going to close these schools, close the quote-unquote bad schools and open new ones and open the door to charters, which at the time were very popular you know, across the country are becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of an example of the cycle of back and forth of who's going to control the schools and how are we going to improve them and who's going to have the final say over them. And then other pivotal moments, certainly every time there's a, a change in mayors, that's a pivotal moment because he or she can appoint whoever they want as CEO. So, you know, Rahm Emanuel put in uh, Ron Huberman, I believe it was his name, and then Forrest Claypool. So there's a long tradition, really, of 
up until now, not having educators running the school system, of mayors turning to business types, thinking that they're going to be the one to get the school system finances in shape and get the school system running, quote-unquote, efficiently. And, And that's where this kind of fascination, I think you call it, with let's try privatization comes from that that Sarah talked about. Um, But I always find it interesting to hear the recollections of people who grew up in Chicago and actually either went to public schools or perhaps went to Catholic schools, but knew what was going on in the school system. I didn't grow up in Chicago. This will tell you just a quick anecdote kind of the view that a lot of people have of the school system. People ask me where I went to school, and I'd say, oh, did I go to private school or public school? I went to public school. I didn't grow up in Chicago. And I went to public schools all during my K-12 schooling, and uh, people would act surprised that I went to public schools, never went to Catholic schools at all, because so many people who grew up in Chicago went to Catholic schools. Interesting. Sarah, charter schools, um, they are one of the most contentious topics in, in our country's education system. And, of course, it's no different here in Chicago. So remind us how the charter system works here. So we only have had, for most of the time that Chicago Public Schools has had charter schools, it, one authorizer, meaning that basically the Board of Education says, okay, we'll take a charter school, we'll allow you to open, and that's what happened. Now, there was a short period of time that the state had an authorizer, which actually just stopped a couple of years ago. But for the most part, it's been the school district. And basically what, what CPS does is it pays the charter school the roughly the same amount as it would be paying to educate a student in a traditional Chicago public school. So it's like a stipend. You get a stipend per child. And let me say that it's not just that we started doing that with charter schools, giving a stipend per student. Chicago public schools also started doing that with traditional schools. So it was this idea that the money followed the child. The schools got what they needed in order to provide a robust education. So there's a fundamental difference. Now, there was always, even prior to what we call student-based budgeting, we always had, like, you know, the amount of money that schools got was tied to enrollment, but it wasn't as strict as the money followed the child. Mm-hmm. Lorraine, what do you make of how charter schools work here in Chicago? you think they're getting the job done? or? Well, when you look at the data on charter schools, the charter schools will point out, oh, you know, we do better, our test scores are better, our high school graduation rates were better. But when you look at it closely, there's really not that much difference. The charter schools like to compare themselves to neighborhood schools. And the big problem with that is that charter schools do not function like neighborhood schools. They do not have to take whatever child walks in the door in their immediate community. There are some where, due to neighborhood pressure, the district has said, okay, you have to set aside a certain number of seats for kids from the neighborhood, but kids have to apply to go to charter schools. They don't have to test in or anything, but they do have to apply. When you get a system that takes children who, you know, families are, are, you know, a little more aware have the capacity or resources or ability to navigate the system 
to go and apply to a charter, you know, that child is getting more support from home and is therefore probably going to do better in school. You know, but a charter school that does not have to take anybody who walks in the door from down the street can't compare itself to a neighborhood school that has to. And and charter schools have usually had far fewer students with special needs that they need to deal with Mm -hmm. and provide resources for. And you can't really compare them to neighborhood schools, although charter schools like to. You probably need to compare them to the magnet schools. And when you compare them to magnet schools where children do have to apply, families have to apply, it's pretty much even if not better, on the part of the magnet schools, which do tend to be better. So, you know, across the country, charter schools have kind of lost their luster, and I think it's the same here. Sarah, a quick rundown on teacher strikes, because Chicago is internationally known for its (laughs) strikes. Give us some of the tumultuous history and where things stand right now. Well, up until 2012, it had been 25 years since Chicago Public Schools had a teacher strike. But prior to that, the school system had one like every other year. I mean, that that was when I was growing up in Chicago. It was almost like if there wasn't a teacher strike, it would be shocking. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, I remember, you know, all the different ways that my parents, you know, sort of dispensed of us as children while there was a strike. You know, like they just drop us off at random community centers and be like, go inside and don't turn around. Oh, my God. But because, you know, it was rough for parents. And then in 2012, we had, you know, a teacher strike. It came at the same time. And this is really what um, I think that Chicago has a lot of fame for. Um, or is infamous, depending on which side you look at it. Right now, we have a very progressive caucus that runs the Chicago Teachers Union. They came in after, you know, all this time of labor peace where the union actually, you know, under Richard M. Daly, he gave teachers pretty big raises. You know, someone say, you know, at the expense of like funding the pension system, but Chicago public school teachers got raises year after year and they were pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. At the same time, schools were closing. There was a move towards privatization. A lot of veteran teachers in this whole rigmarole were getting laid off through many different methods. And up from that rose this very progressive caucus called CORE that is now in charge of the Chicago Teachers Union. And so in 2012, they staged a strike. You know, there was some very short strikes and there was like a one day strike to protest state funding not being appropriate. And that was probably like 2015. And then in 2019, we had, you know, the most recent teacher strike. So that progressive caucus still controls the teachers union. And, and, and a lot of people would say that they kind of spurred a national movement of progressive teacher unions. Yeah. Lorraine and Sarah, both, both mm-hmm. of you, your reporting over the years, it, it makes it clear that you can't talk about American schools without talking about race. I think Lorraine mentioned that earlier on in in this conversation. How is systemic racism connected to how we pay for and and resource public schools, Lorraine? Well, after decades in Chicago of redlining and, and housing segregation and housing in black neighborhoods being worth less, assessed at lower value than in white neighborhoods, a system where you rely on property taxes as the major source of funding in Chicago and also in in suburban Chicago 
is going to just turn out to be racist on a systemic level because you're relying on a lower amount of property taxes and a higher tax rate in black communities as opposed to white neighborhoods. And we have a, a state that is at the bottom or I think second from the bottom in terms of state support of public schools and has never funded them to the level there's an advisory board that says the state should be funding schools at a certain amount per student. The state has never funded education to that level, to that minimum recommended level. Yeah. And the schools that enroll black and, and brown kids just end up with less resources. And you've also got a system here in Chicago of uh, where you've got selective enrollment schools that were created to maintain integration but end up enrolling, you know, proportionately more white students and proportionately fewer black and brown kids. So there's just so much that has to do with race here in Chicago on a, a level that affects finances and education. Sarah, what can you quickly add to that mix? Well, I mean, she sort of covered it. I mean, I would just say that over time, there's been a lot of internal decisions when it comes to magnet schools, comes to selective enrollment schools that has favored and targeted middle class white families. And a lot of people would say it was at the expense of the schools that served um, predominantly black and Latino families. Before we run out of time, uh I want to ask you both to pull out your magic wands for just a second. Sarah, I'll start with you. If we could start over and we could build our school system from scratch, give me a quick bullet list of what you would do. I think that what I would do is I'd just sit down and say, what makes a good school? And this is sort of what they did with the state formula that they're trying to fund, this adequacy formula. Like, you should have two social workers, a gym teacher, an art teacher, a music teacher, a theater teacher, a good math teacher, you know, good, you know, all the things that you think of when you should just have a well-funded school. And I would just say that I don't care how many kids are in your school, you should have those things. And we do not do that in Chicago. You know, in, in the suburbs, that's what's done. They look at how, what they need and then they get that money from the taxpayers. In Chicago, individual schools, they just get the amount of money that they have per child yeah. without thinking about what the students need. And I think that that's a big flaw, and I wish that every school could have everything. Briefly, Lorraine, tell us your thoughts. What system would you create, and, and how might it best serve our well, young ones? When you talk about system, I agree with what Sarah says. You've got to give you know, a school what it needs. But in terms of a system, I would have a system where schools do not rely on property taxes as their main source of income because you're just setting up a system of haves and haves nots. You know, I, I would create a, a system where financing was equitable, where schools would have the basics, but schools and communities where there are more challenges, they'd get a little more. You know, maybe they'd get an extra social worker, maybe they'd get an extra nurse, maybe they'd get just more because yeah. they need more to educate need more to meet their challenges. Well, that is Lorraine Forte, editorial board member at the Chicago Sun-Times and former editor-in-chief of Catalyst Chicago, and Sarah Karp, WBEZ's veteran education reporter. Thank you both. Thank you. 
And that's it for today's Reset. Come back all this week to hear the best from our Reimagined Chicago series on education. For more Reset interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It really helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.